Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and John Cross of The Daily Mirror. FA Cup weekend is supposed to be about the democracy of football. It did its best to kindle the fires at Newcastle, Kidderminster and Boreham Wood. But the first team through to the fourth round, Manchester City, bring us back to reality. 53 wins in all competitions in 2021, a record. 33 more Premier League points than Chelsea. 27 more points than Liverpool in the calendar year. 11 straight Premier League wins since October the 30th. Beat Chelsea at the weekend and the title race will resemble a procession. So Miggs, too good for the common good? Uh, It feels like that. I mean, right right now, it is a little bit of a perfect storm. I mean, because there's probably never been a club in history like this who have been so specifically built to the specifications of one coach, which is Pep Guardiola. Not, Not even... Ferguson's Manchester United over 26 years. The very fact that City had put it so much in place to get Guardiola. And what's the end consequence of that? It's pretty much what we're seeing now. So we've got you know, a, a club pretty much owned by an Emirate, the most lavish football project we've ever seen. E- even before FFP, the amount of money pumped into it, basically took Barcelona's... I mean, well, Barcelona were pretty much the Apple or Facebook or whatever you want to call it, of football in 2010. Pretty much took their entire hierarchy as well as you know, a, a, a lot of figures below, all in preparation to get maybe the greatest manager of all time in charge. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like what we're seeing now, which is a club regularly capable of getting over 95 points. What I think there's only been, what, five or six teams that have ever done that in history, and all but two of them have been City. And of the, of the other two that weren't, two were Liverpool. Um, and one of those didn't win the title because of City. 
Uh, so, I mean, th- there is the possibility that it will drop off after Guardiola leaves, whenever that is. But uh, we, might, we might just see them get in the next best coach in the world. Um, but for the moment, the net consequence is that any competitor pretty much has to be perfect. And I think that that's what was a little bit disheartening over Christmas. I mean, like Chelsea are owned by an oligarch. They they should be a club who are as capable of competing. They're just built in a different way. And if it was really diff- there is a difference that uh, Tuchel's only been in that job, well, still less than a year. And Guardiola's been in it for almost six now. So there is going to be that difference. But it was just a fact... I, I know people were going on about how, oh, Liverpool, Liverpool if you stra- extrapolated their results over a season, it's only 82 points. Chelsea's only 80. Uh, so it's it's not really City's issue. But it works two ways, that, because it's also about the gap. Because Chelsea and Liverpool had those slips, which used to be quite natural over Christmas, it meant that they just... Ultimately, the title is pretty much gone. As you say, it almost comes down to, to this Saturday. When when we look at it, John, do you think there's a danger of creating a, a, a Bayern-style vacuum at the top of the Premier League? Because, you know, let's look at it... it increasingly the fourth title in five years looks like a formality they go into an FA Cup tie supposedly with 21 uh, staff or players unavailable and and win easily Um, they are incredibly deep incredibly strong irresistible yeah I do see that and I do think it's you know it's in danger of perhaps becoming a one horse race I do think there is a point where I do think we should you know celebrate and I, I know this won't sit with everyone but say um they deserve all, all the credit basically and it's down it is down to I think City's brilliance Guardiola I think is a visionary and I do think of course there's money there and of course we'll have this debate and of course others will go well I wish we had their money and of course you know the, the you know the disparity between the rest but they are managed by you know an absolute genius their some of their recruitment has been has been terrific and um some of their their styles and some of the things that Guardiola has done deserve so much respect i do think we are living through an amazing period of football history where guardiola you know has raised the bar Klopp has answered it once and and you know guardiola has gone again um and we shouldn't kid ourselves here that basically gen- generally when when Chelsea win the, the Champions League and then spend ninety seven million pounds with Romelu Lukaku to sign a striker to give them the missing piece of the jigsaw, well they should close the gap a bit. And yes, I guess they have closed the gap, but not as much as people you know think maybe that they should have in the title race. So I don't think it's completely you know as simple as you know Man City have, have outspent and outstripped everyone else and it's it's unfair. I do think we should. You know, sometimes take a step back and say, "Wow, you know they are playing well." I mean, look at Cancelo. I th- I think that he's a case in point. You know, he's taken on the the, the Guardiola thing, uh, uh, vision, and what he expects from a fullback, and completely reinvented that position. I mean, what he's what he's done is is just remarkable. It's just, and uh, and some degree, and yeah, I mean, they're missing twenty one people. I'd love to know who the twenty one were. You know, so <laughs> who are they? I mean, because to be honest with you, that that team at Swindon, which won so well, was arguably a lot stronger than a lot of you know 
Premier League teams put out as their first string at the weekend. So I do, you know, who's it made up of, really? You know, of course Guardiola was an obvious absentee and there's going to be others, but come on, that was still pretty strong. And in, within that, by the way, the Guardiola always takes the domestic cup seriously. And that's one of the reasons why I give him so much respect, because not all, all managers do, whether they be, you know, English, UK, or, 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 you know, overseas. And I really respect that, and that's why... I do admire, one of the reasons I admire him so much. So I do think, you know, I think we're in danger of being a little bit disingenuous and not appreciating the genius at times. No, I don't think anyone wants to do them down in any way. You know, you, you've got to admire the relentlessness of their ambition. I think also, Migs, you know, follow, following up on John's point there, there is a, a clear and well-defined strategy here, especially you know, even down to the attributes that, that Guardiola requires for each role within the team. And obviously then that funnels down into the recruitment process. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, sometimes I do think the, oh, the recruitment process can be oversight a little bit in terms of the kind of the perfection of how they get it, because it's not always that. I think what, what, what the recruitment process is obviously absolutely superb. There's another element to it, and, and I think it's one actually illustrated by Cancelo across there. I mean, Cancelo, yes, Guardiola has been brilliant in how what, what he's done with him, how he's developed his game. But Cancelo, is a, what, what price did he go for? 58.5 million, or 58 to 60 million. I mean, that's a huge amount of money for someone at the time who was probably maybe seen as just another uh, full-back option. And this has been kind of the thing with City as well. It's that it's not just they can afford this level or the recruitment so good. It's that they can they can so quickly afford to rectify mistakes. If one player doesn't work out, well, we'll just get another one for close to sixty million. And their policy has been to not usually go above sixty, sixty-five until Grealish this summer. Then look at Grealish. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit like the full-backs where it's so many the positions are almost or so, so many players in so many positions are almost interchangeable. And they like they all like, like last season the title was won what basically with a core of very expensive players just having different spells of a good form and and yes so much of that is down to how Guardiola coaches and bring in players that that trust his system but of course Guardiola wouldn't be there if the if the Barcelona hierarchy weren't there he wouldn't be there if Begurastein weren't there and Begurastein wouldn't, wouldn't be there if well <laughs> the money wasn't there um, Miguel I, get, but, I but, get that but I do think that Arsenal spent 72 million on Nicola Pepe absolute disaster how much did Spurs spend on Ndombele but, but could, Ar- could Arsenal rectify that mistake? Could, like, could they just go out and buy an equivalent player? Well, they, they have done. They you, you'd have to argue that they have done. You know, they, 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 but, but, but to the, to, I, to I just the think their price. recruitment has been spectacularly bad. And last summer they set about making, trying to make up for it. And it's going to take, take time to try and make up for it, to be honest. And look at Spurs. Spurs sent, spent, you know, some serious money. And Dombele being an absolute prime example... I mean, I I have to say, there's bits in Ndombele where I absolutely love. But, you know, he looks at, there's a proper player in there, but no one's found the way to unlock it in the Premier League. So I do, you know, listen, I get what you're saying. And, I, you know, Cancelo, he's, you're right, he's expensive. But, I, I you know, I think there's, there's been other expensive fullbacks, to be perfectly honest. And Most of them are signed by City. Yeah, though. I know, yeah. But it's just, <laughs> I do, you know, I just feel as if, you know, Wambasaka. I mean, seriously. Yeah. You know, look at that. But, the don't you find? And if if, if it United was, it was, 
had United had, had signed Cancelo and had the coach to develop him, I mean, you could argue the same about Wan-Bissaka for that matter, then we'd be looking at a different, a different Man United. But they haven't, and they didn't. And so... There was an eternal truth that was contained in a quote that I think you used um, uh, yesterday, Migs, uh, from Conte, where he said, the transfer market can't solve your situation. It can't be the only situation. And in that context, is the one area that City need to improve, heaven help us, uh, their academy production? You know, we've had Foden come through. Um, they've had Youth Cup wins. Um, Cole Palmer looks to be the next one on the block, doesn't he, judging by what we saw on Friday night? Well, I, I suppose this is almost one of the issues as well. It's, I mean, it's because City's Academy is one of the best in the country. Again, that comes from having such a, a lavish product and the amount of money pumped into it. But because of the levels they've set and because they, they really don't have the same need as a lot of other clubs, they basically they, they don't need to resort to bringing in, to basically giving young players a pun. So it's, it almost works the other way around where young players have to get up to a very, very specifically high standard to have a chance of getting in. And then, and to be fair, once they've proven that, City w- will trust them, as we've seen with Foden. It's, it's a little bit like Chelsea five or six years ago before they, um, b- before the, 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 the sudden core that was initially brought in under Lampard when they had the transfer ban, where there was always debate about when a Chelsea Academy player would come true. So I probably wouldn't hold that at City too much. It's more about kind of the, the standards they've got. And also because they just... Because of all this put together, they just don't need to go to the academy as much. They, they, when it comes right down to it, they, they, um, they can go to the market in a way other clubs can't. Yeah, talking to other clubs, you know, Newcastle, John have rec- uh, replaced City as the richest club in the world. So we're told. Um, what are the lessons that they can draw from City's development, especially in the early days of you know Rubinho, etc.? Uh, yeah, don't sign Rubinho, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it is interesting the way that Newcastle started off. And I I, I tend to think that, you know, Trippier, I think, has been signed to strengthen the back four, but also signed for um, character reasons, um, we're told. And I can sort of see that. He is generally quite known as being a good, you know, good guy amongst the group. But, you know, I think he's, he's going to try Eddie Howe and sign a new back four if he can. And I think it's quite it's quite interesting, really. I'd, would he have signed, Would he be looking at another striker if Callum Wilson had been out for quite so long? I'm not sure, really. I think the first and foremost, he's trying to build a base that can get them out of the relegation zone. Because I, I do tend to think that there are... Basically, there's four teams in that mix... And I think that the Newcastle are trying to make enough of a difference um, to get themselves out at the expense of Watford and basically leave Watford in and, you know, escape. Uh, they should surely be able to do that with the with the right recruitment. Because let's be honest, none of that group have lost touch. It's incredible that Norwich, even Norwich haven't. And Norwich don't, it didn't feel like they've won a game this century you know it's like ridiculous and um they, sometimes Norwich are so far off it and in fairness Newcastle and Burnley are still competitive in games and it doesn't feel to me as if like Watford are at the moment 
And so I just feel as if Newcastle trying to make a difference so that they can be slightly better than the rest without making stupid signings that they're going to further down the line. But my feeling is that, you know, I do worry that if they make the wrong appointments from a football side in terms of, you know, whoever that might be, sort of not just in terms of director in football, but basically recruitment and, you know, going to the right people. If they get that slightly wrong, then they'll just get fleeced because people will see them coming. And I think that's the biggest danger. As the window begins to close, I think that basically they'll get a lot of calls from from people saying that this player's available, that player's available. Yes, you can take him on loan. I mean, Coutinho is a classic case, you know, in point, really. Villa have snapped him up, got a good deal as as they see it. But if there was no takers in the last, which I don't think there probably was apart from Villa, and I wonder, you know, last three days, would they have had a call, basically? Well, you could argue, yes. Do they really want to sign Aubameyang at this stage? Well, probably they're going to resist that call. But then last three days, if he's available, do they do it? You know, that those are the sort of pitfalls and dangers. And I think that's that's almost what they've got to avoid. And by signing Trippier, I actually think that's a, you know, a fairly decent, sensible signing of intent, basically. He's almost like a, you know, piece of bait in the water to try and attract other players I think isn't he really because you know as you said he's by common consent he's 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 known as a very very good pro um Miggs you know let's be honest here like City Newcastle are going to have to get used to resentment and envy which is obviously behind the the general sense of glee when they lost to Cambridge at the weekend was that was the timing of that defeat unfortunate, given the presence of the Saudi hierarchy there at St James's? And is there any chance, you know, that they're they're making um, eyes at Inter? Do you think Inter might even usurp Newcastle as the as the great Saudi project? Well, yeah, I mean, from from what you hear, um, despite all the talk about being having the wealthiest owners in football, at the moment they're mostly being run like. Um, like an investment, uh, which means relatively prudent uh, expenditure. Yes, there's money there from the, the previous refusal to uh, spend over windows, but maybe not quite as outlandish, say, as City's first two years, which you referenced um, a few a few moments ago. Um, yeah, there is potential for Inter to to usurp them in terms of prestige, especially given that they're they're a Champions League club and potentially. Um, yeah, we 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 could we could be talking about another title. Uh, the resentment one's an interesting. I mean, it's it's a credit to uh, to the local journalists, particularly Simon Bird, and that that the story about the Saudis visiting or the Saudi contingent visiting the dressing room just got out so quickly. Uh, it, it it must have been within moments. Uh, and I, I was thinking, looking at the reaction to that game, <laughs> I can't think of a result that's been more universally celebrated. Maybe what. Bulgaria against Germany in the 94 World Cup uh, just in terms of ge- <laughs> the general reaction to it um, I, I think Crossy's absolutely right in that I've been told loads of clubs basically see Newcastle as a potential either an ATM who will just sign players that boost their own budget or else uh, a solution to their problems uh, in that they, they, you can get you know Aubameyang is a case in point maybe Newcastle one of the clubs that can get rid of a problem player for you. Um, and it is going to make things a little bit 
not, not tricky, but it's got to give them questions to answer. And, I suppose, and, and so much of this conditions this future and what the project's going to look like. Because right now, I think Crossy's right about bringing Watford in. I, I do wonder whether this is ultimately, this relegation battle is going to come down to just Newcastle against Burnley, maybe bringing Leeds in, but I think they should have enough, although they're still a little bit uh, ropey. Um, and while I think signing, with signings like Trippier, you think Newcastle should have enough quality to sell, but I suppose one of the issues is, especially when, as Crossy says, you are faced with so many potential choices, so many players put in your way, put in your way that you can sign, there's suddenly that risk that for all the quality you're getting in, it just disrupts the chemistry of the team and creates issues there. So it, 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 this relegation battle could well come down to Newcastle's core of signings trying to settle against Burnley's... What, I mean, OK, they've had problems this season and you could even argue that Burnley have actually been declining for some time. But there is still a kind of a, a, a resilience there from how tightly... Uh, uh, Deich has bound that team together and that that could well be the relegation battle this season that of course decides a lot of this Newcastle project I mean how how would the, the, the Saudi owners see it if they do go down straight away how much that change the direction for all the kind of public talk from people like Amanda Staveley um, cause it, because it does feel even from the, from stories like that on Saturday that there's there's a lot of politics at the top of that club now there are what's, it, what's all this say about the accelerating elitism in the English game, then Crossy, where, you know, how many different tiers are there these days in the Premier League? Obviously, we've said, right, City are out on their own. Then you've got Liverpool and Chelsea together. Then you've got a group scuffling for top four, top seven. Then you've got the upwardly mobile clubs like a Southampton now. We'll, we'll, we'll dwell on their ownership in a minute. Um, then you've got the, the yo-yos at the bottom. Um you know, we are in a we've got one Premier League, but it's actually about four or five Premier Leagues, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It does feel a bit like that, really. I do think for years we've probably just had had sort of kind of three almost, haven't we? And it it feels like that's expanded a bit, really. And you know, it's interesting, really, t- to be honest. That who I mean, Newcastle's you, you know ownership was is, um, was. Um, you know, the, the basic the buy was was established for such a long time. It felt like a two year plan established even before the pandemic. Really, I, I, it does interest me and surprise me that basically in amongst this, how on earth do you value and estimate the the worth of a of a Premier League club right now, um, particularly one that's really not going to be pushing? I don't think for European football outside of that that group. It'll be interesting to see, you know, whether it sort of kind of levels out a bit. But if you look at sort of, you know, West Ham ownership, you know, coming in into play um, now, obviously Southampton, there's still a lot of desire there to buy English clubs, which is quite it's, it interests me, really, simply because I don't know whether they're going to be the the kind of the cash fund and the sort of the cash cow that, that, that they have been, but, you know, particularly in the past. And it's, you know, a Burnley... What Burnley now, you know, in in terms of that that that, that takeover is that takeover really going well? I think I think it's been a it bad feels... thing to the club, John. To be honest, that leverage yeah. buyout. Mm. I don't. I think it's it's destabilised the club and it's made it's given the club. I don't. Know, it's stripped some of its identity away for me. Yeah. Well, it felt like that, Mike, didn't it? In in the summer, 
with with Cornet, and I'll be honest, I was quite surprised that sort of Dice signed again, if you like, um, because he was up at the end of the season. He signed again. He's he, you know, he's gone for it, and it feels like they're moving slightly in a different direction with recruitment, even if they're not with with the manager. And is that that is that going to cost the manager basically? You know, if he's because uh, you know, I've, I, I'm slightly concerned that it will really because I think Sean Dyche has done such an incredible job, and Burnley have have given everyone a, a little bit of hope that you can stay in the Premier League for some time. And I, you know, if you're going to see in a sort of an end of that, I, I that concerns me in a way more than, um, you know, sort of a, almost a one horse title race, if you like. Because I don't, you know, I think everyone should be able to have, and I don't know whether, listen, I might be wrong here. This might be a long-term knock-on effect of that, of that kind of spiralling money at the top and basically might be sort of filtering down. I hope not. I don't think so, if I'm brutally honest. But the the one area that concerns me more is the ability for a club to get up to even if it's sort of to yo-yo through a couple of seasons, but then to establish themselves like Burnley have done, then I think that's you know that's a good thing, and I'd be really sorry and sad to see the back of that. But I do worry a bit that that's because I think the gap is actually so close now between you know average Championship and sort of bottom end of the Premier League, and people might say, well, that's a bad thing, but actually I think gives everyone a turn and basically the best will excel. I mean, look at Brighton. Brighton, you know, Brighton is sort of kind of mid-table. Brighton is the busy, you know, improve and establish themselves each season. So I, I, I'd be really sorry to see that opportunity pass and, you know, pass other clubs by to, to kind of, you know, be well run, establish themselves, go through some pain, but then also, you know, come back and actually make themselves pretty much a model of, of what a well-sustained, well-run football club could be in the Premier League. Mm, I think Southampton have got a you know a reputation for being an innovative club, um, and if you look at them now, Megs, you know they're they're talking about following the, the the City Global model. Maybe four or five more clubs in the group envisaged around Europe and maybe in the US. Um, what's the significance of their new ownership? You think it's, I found it quite interesting that that. The former Brentford uh, director of football, uh, Rasmus Ankersen's uh, almost seen as pivotal in that. Yeah, um, I mean, and it, 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 Southampton's actual their low key success are almost kind of quiet success, shouldn't be overlooked, given they're one of now one of the the longest serving clubs in the Premier League. As you say, they were for so long actually a bit of a model in how to do things. Um, this is going to be an interesting. It suggests maybe more innovation there if 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 some way picking up the city example but almost but applying some of the methods that these more successful clubs that have got around some of these ceilings like Brentford like Brighton um have shown so it's 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 quite interesting in that perspective um the one thing actually just just picking up on the point there about I suppose you know the what owners like Burnley are trying to do, and what owners like Southampton. I, I think all of this is basically consequence in that the Premier League right now is pretty much, it's almost a de facto Super League. It, I mean, I've was, I was just talking to people who move in these sort of circles, if you like, recently, and the comparison was put between trying to buy an Italian club or trying to buy even a championship club in England. And, you know, it's, put, it's basically, there's no decision to make. Because it makes much more sense to buy the English club 
because you get up into the Premier League. As, as, I mean, one of the examples of that in the last two or three years is Leeds United. Look at the way there. It, it came out after the whole um, the discussion about the Crouch report and some of the comments made by Kinnear. Uh, but look at the way their revenue suddenly just mushroomed uh, as soon as they got to the Premier League. And so many potential investors in football are looking at that. Where they, if they can get a club into the Premier League for any sort of time, they're talking about potentially huge return on investment here. Now, I suppose that there's another element to that in that it could see the rise of more whatever about states owning clubs and all that as well. There's also the issue of potentially equity firms looking to buy clubs and, and looking at clubs purely in terms of that, in terms of buying a club, get them in and almost doing the bare minimum to try and, well, not so much the bare minimum, but being fairly, not, not necessarily spending as much as a club can or to or maximising uh, expenditure uh, purely because they want that return on investment. Uh, and it, the Premier League is in a very different world now. And as I say, it's become almost that Super League by design, and and it's the, it's the one the world is looking. It's the it's the huge advantages, huge advantage it has over every single competition in the world. Now that really can't be overstated, uh, but it's now bringing, I suppose, other potential discussions in terms of who owns clubs. When you think of Aston Villa, you mentioned uh, Coutinho earlier, uh, Crossy. Um, you know they're becoming increasingly assertive. The Coutinho d- deal. If you think about it, thirty-three million. If they if they're satisfied with them, I suppose. Um, given how much money he went to <laughs> went to Barcelona for, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, Stephen Gerrard seemed absolutely central to that deal. Um, he already seems to have the stature of a Premier League manager, doesn't he? Yeah, I I I, I covered a lot of his early games actually, and I really like. Um, the way he holds himself, he, he does have a presence. And I do think that that sort of generates a uh, a response from players. I think players really like him. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a really good, I think, introduction and, uh, and, and start from him. I do think he has something special. And I do think he has the real makings of a... Of a manager, you know, sometimes it just it just holds you a bit. I think basically, and sort of kind of you you sit up and 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 take notice, and you you really notice. I think the difference between those that just have that little bit little bit extra, and I I do think he's got the the makings of it. I don't know what constitutes success for Villa and for Steven Gerrard. That that's that's my only thing, and I think that you know he, he's he's going to take a bit of time. I think because. Largely been really good results. I think the only really negative result so far has been at Brentford, when I think that you know they 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 weren't because the other games they lost were against you know, blimey, a little bit unlucky to lose at Liverpool. I, I was at the Man City game when they lost at home. They were you know they were in that until the end, and there've been some really good performances in that. And I I just think he needs to improve certain areas of it. But he has actually brought out already some good performances from a, a squad that you know has been hit by by a few injuries. It's got some obvious flaws in it, particularly midfield, and a bit of creativity behind the two strikers. Does he fancy Danny Ings? I'm not. You know, let's see whether he really wants to play with with two because it looks to me, even though Watkins was missing last week, you know, kind of Watkins would be the preferred option. You know, I think Watkins is, you know, he's got real potential. He works so hard and he brings so much to the team. Um, 
So I still think there's a lot there to be done. But I do think Coutinho is down to him, isn't it? Basically, it's Coutinho, that personal link. It's the phone call. It's the, you know, come and join us. I mean, listen, Coutinho, last three windows or so, I mean, it's been a one-man sort of kind of sales pitch, hasn't it? Basically, <laughs> go and link yourself with as many top European clubs as possible. Are many interested? Well, frankly, no. No, they're not. I mean, it's just ridiculous to suggest that five or six, you know, were really seriously in. You know, it might have made a call to five or six and there might have been a slight bit of interest. But I don't believe that, you know, any of the kind of the the top four as it stands were was beaten down the door to go and sign Coutinho, really, frankly. And it's it's Villa that ultimately, I wouldn't say take a risk, because if you end up paying 40% of his wages and then, a, you know, quite a relatively low fixed fee then fair play. But I tell you, Gerard's biggest test is to get anything out of Coutinho because he's been, he's stalled for two years, more perhaps. And I just think that's, he needs to get a level of performance and fit him into the team. And that's a big challenge and a big test of his, of his abilities as a manager. Mm. Speaking of management, um, I think we probably would agree that Conte is, is probably the epitome of the, the modern manager. You know, give him the tools. In other words, you know, match my ambition. I think was the quote, uh, or he's off. You know, short term. Um, Migs, you you saw Tottenham against um, Morecambe on Sunday. Um, how many of those players that you saw on Sunday won't play for Spurs again? <laughs> well, uh, the only reason they might play for them again, actually, I think, is because they've got no takers. That's a big. <laughs> I think if Conte had his way, they wouldn't. But looking at particularly, the, I suppose, the two highest profile yesterday. In Dumbele and um, and Deli Ali, at the moment no one wants them, uh, and it does create an issue. I, I think it's 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 pretty damning for those two as well, precisely because Conte. I mean, whatever the discussion about Conte in that regard, he is a manager who will. He he says to the players right at the very start, if you are willing to work for me, you have a chance. Um, and, I, and, and Harry Winks actually a bit of a proof of that and that he was a player that was pretty much on his way out with Spurs been discarded lost his place in the England squad but he was willing to look, knuckle down on their Conte and he's turned things around for the moment he basically just <laughs> doesn't like what he sees from Delhi, from Ondombele and a fair few yes I mean while I do think I was at, I was at the game yesterday and it obviously one of the, the, the most uplifting story of it was what Morecambe did and how close they came, the fact they led for so long, and even the fact—I mean, even the fact—they had to push Spurs to bring on the cavalry, bring on Kane and Lucas. Uh, but it it also meant that this game had another meaning beyond the FA Cup as well, and that was, it was pretty much Conte picking this team as a last chance to prove themselves, and and also because they knew where, where they stood in terms of uh, <laughs> how he sees the squad, and a, a fair few of them. Pretty much failed that. I mean, you'd worry maybe about Tanganga under Conte. I think it's like, it's widely expected that Doherty, if they can do the deal, uh, that he, uh, he might go back to Wolves as uh, Adama Traore comes the other way. Um, Brian Gale, I suppose, he, he, uh, yeah, he was he was played out of position yesterday, and there's enough there to suggest was he he can have a future. Um, but uh, the goalkeeper Galini as well, Joe Roden, I know. Previously, Spurs fans have placed a lot of stock in him. He had another uncertain game yesterday, and the suggestions are that maybe Conte isn't overly keen. So, I mean, that, that's pretty much what. O- over half the, the 11 yesterday 
that just Conte wouldn't want there. But it also, I mean, yeah, yeah this is this also it creates an issue touching what you, what you said at the top of that question, where it's up to Spurs to match Conte's ambition. But because of the way they've been run, and this has been an issue going back to Conte, or so going back to Pochettino as well, where he wanted to clear out of that squad much earlier. But basically, for all sorts of reasons, most mostly at that point because of the prices that Daniel Levy was asking. It was it was almost like a classic uh, false economy in that he wanted value of price for a lot of these players that Pochettino didn't want. Couldn't get it. And that just meant it actually cost Spurs much more in the long run because Pochettino had a lot of players around that he didn't want, didn't have a use for, and it prevented his own rebuilding. And is, is it possible we're going to see similar now? Uh, at the moment, although m- much more so because there's a core of players there that they can't get rid of. Uh, at the moment, Spurs are operating sell to buy. Well, we know Daniel Levy has been discussing this with Joe Lewis. Um, they may that may have to evolve because to do what Conte thinks he should be capable of with this squad, and they do have, under Conte, they do have a strong first eleven there. Um, they need more backup, and it it it, it does actually make maybe. After Newcastle, Spurs' most interesting club in this window. You know, when you look at it, you know, there's a pressing problem. Um, Sun misses Chelsea, Arsenal, and Leicester up to the international break. Um, you know, you can argue in many ways that he's 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 made more important, or certainly just as important, a player as Harry Kane to them. Um, looking at that. League Cup semi-final against um, uh, Chelsea on Wednesday, John, the return leg. Um, I can't see any way back for them, can you? I can't really. I mean, I think the, you know, the best positive they can take out that that first leg, Spurs, because they were so poor, particularly first half, they were dreadful, was that, the, you know, 2-0 is still an achievable scoreline at home. I can't believe it's still they're still in it. I mean, Chelsea did have other chances to, to go and win the game. And I must say, after after the game, Conte shocked me because I thought he would lambastic, you know, comedy, you know, Sunday league defending on the two goals. But beyond that, you know, he really surprised me about how he ripped into the team. He said they're mid-table. He basically said, you know, I knew here when I, basically when I arrived what a big job it would be and basically it's going to take more, you know, at least a year more than... And then, uh, you know, and then uh, I, I just thought he really, he, I thought he maybe, did he go a bit too far? Is he sort of challenged, challenged, challenged the players? He said every game in the Premier League has, um, to get three points so far has been a struggle. Not a single one has been straightforward. And I do think that basically he's, he's laid it on the line there. That's either a challenge to, you know, basically the hierarchy to get me some deals in January or... You know, a, an underlying warning sign from Conte, who's a very combustible, excitable figure at the, at the quietest of times. Um, basically, you know, saying, yeah, there might be trouble ahead here. Because what, I mean, I totally agree with Miguel in that in the basically, what, what a Spurs squad. You know, Lloris is a good goalkeeper. Reguilón, I think, is a good, potentially good left wing back. What else in defence? You know, talks about Eric Dyer being potentially one of the best centre-halves in the world. Really? And, you know, Hoiberg has become so one-dimensional since Jose left. So one-dimensional. And he's been, you know, sort of exposed, I think, to the level that he is, really. And, yeah, Winks is a good early early success for Conte. The front three, great. 
I, you know, but where else? The squad is not in great shape. But having said all that, you know, they win their games in hand. They're top four. It's it's that that's the amazing part of it. And Miguel, I've got to say, right? I I think Conte is such a genius. If he can train his brain right, and sort of kind of keep it together, I wouldn't put it past him to finish fourth. But that, that's the other side of it, isn't it? That yeah. despite despite the shambles that Spurs season had been, despite how far off the pace were, what happened with Nuno, they're still within touching distance. There's actually there's actually a real opportunity there because right now Manchester United are basket case. Also, well, Arsenal have come on so much, and you can see there's so much potential there. They do have that fragility from the squad being so young, basically. That that's that's still a bit of an it, and, and there's almost that sense it could be a bit too early for Arsenal. This Arsenal, and the Spurs like can't take advantage of that, but. Much that will depend, as you say, on maybe Conte keeping his own focus or alternatively uh, Spurs actually backing him with two or three of the signings he needs, maybe more. Yeah, when you look at it, though, let's say Everton, they're an object lesson in how to spend a fortune without really going any, you know, basically standing still. Um, Migs, do you think the pressure on Rafa Benitez is unlikely to ease, you know, despite that win at Hull? You know, because well, we we had the spectacle there, didn't we? Of travelling supporters applauding the home fans who were you know, coming out with that awful "you're getting sacked in the morning" chant. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> right now it feels like any victory Everton have is only basically just temporarily uh, alleviating <laughs> the really palpable anger you get in the stands. I mean, right now, and it's probably just been this way for a long time for all sorts of reasons. They do feel like the the angriest fan base in the Premier League. A lot of it's justifiable. Uh, and it's, well, I mean, it, 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 to be honest, it remains one of the baffling things about the Benitez signing. And it's not a reflection on Benitez as a manager, who still has so many qualities, even if he's not, say, one of the best in the world as he was 15 years ago when he was at Liverpool. But being at Liverpool, the key point, in that you can't get away from the fact. And I, I, I know people talk about how fans should be kind of grown up with this sort of thing, but I actually disagree there because... You know, this comes down to issues of identity and clubs, heroes, and all that. And it does feel a little bit like, you know, it was a funny phrase, almost a mugging off to the fans to appoint one of your biggest rivals, biggest managerial legends. That's what Benitez was because of Istanbul. And what it did was, whatever about Benitez's quality of a manager, it does mean that anytime anything goes wrong, all this stuff comes up again, all this emotion, all this connection he has with another club, it's never going to go away. Unless he did something transcendent at Everton, which is pretty much impossible because of the situation they're in. Um, and it basically just causes a whole load of unnecessary problems. And I do think this isn't going to go away until basically Benitez leaves. They've almost got a bit of an, an unsolvable problem there unless they actually change manager and you know that that maybe that doesn't seem uh, that wouldn't be a fair reflection on the actual job Benitez has done there which has actually been bar the spell over the last two months because he had such a good start a much better start than Ancelotti let's not forget um that it's it's actually a lot better than it could be given how bad given how bad recent form it's has been but it, it means there's going to be a problem there that never goes away and going to feeds into this anger around the club which is of course connected to much wider issues than the manager because it's because of how they've been run for so long and I don't think it's actually a stretch to say Everton are possibly the most dysfunctional club in the Premier League and have been for for some time some of it 
um, in a lower profile way than others over the years. But but right now, it, 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 there's just a constant sense of a club that spends an awful lot to ultimately go nowhere. Yeah. Um, John, like me, I know you, you love third round um, weekend. Um, really good weekend um, in, a, in a way that it provides a platform for emerging players. You know, we saw Lewis Hall at, at, at Chelsea, Michael Elise for Palace, uh, Kay Gordon for Liverpool. And the one that got me, um, and I'm sure it's the same with you, John, I felt about 155 years old when I saw <laughs> that DiMaggio Wright Phillips, who's the son of Sean and the grandson of Ian Wright, was playing for Stoke against Orient. I thought, blimey. Um, that platform for young players is great. And out of those names that I mentioned, who who actually who caught your eye at the weekend? Oh, yeah, it's not quite so young, but um, Spence at, um, uh, from Forest actually was, was yeah. good, you know. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, you know, I think Ian, Ian Wright's grandson was playing alongside Kevin, Kevin Campbell's son, wasn't he? And, um, yeah. and, and Andy Cole's son as well. So it's quite... It's quite interesting. Yeah, look, I do think that that Chelsea have got some. Uh, I would argue, Mix. I know you were there, but basically, you know, Chelsea have got another generation of ones coming through. Um, that that sort of, you know have won the um, have won the sort of kind of you know got a youth cup background basically, and sort of have, have done really really good things. And look, I do think Cole Palmer is is one we mentioned him earlier, didn't we? I, I mean. I, he's a player in me. I don't know whether he's quite Phil Foden level, but I love the way that he glides, and um, and, and and so on. And I think he's he's got massive potential it, because Foden has been so good that he's kind of you know slipped under under the radar. And listen, it's not always easy, is it? Because Arsenal fans have been getting themselves in a lather, you know, ridiculously so about Charlie Patino. And then, you know, he makes one sort of brief cameo appearance in which he scores, and then basically you put him in, shall we say, a, a real cup tie, a real test when he actually gets pressed. Forget those YouTube clips when he gets the ball and has all, you know, from the centre half and basically has all the time in the world to turn and, and spray a pass. You don't get that in, in, in kind of, how can we put it, men's football. And it's, you know... It is an opportunity, and you sink or swim pretty quickly. And it's a bit different. I get that if you're, you know, a Chelsea youngster who's playing at Stamford Bridge, and you're up against a sort of a minnow, if you like, at home, um, to being, you know, a, a sort of a harem scarem sort of a way tie against Championship. You know, so I do get that, but it's still an opportunity, and that's one of the reasons why I, I really like it. Hate it when people, you know, play when sort of managers. Um, almost mix and match, and it it never works, you know. Basically, uh, amongst those players, because I think sometimes you sort of kind of think, oh, well, sort of that fringe senior player, he'll he'll help that young player through. And I quite like, you know, I was at West Ham Leeds yesterday for my sins, and I'm not, you know, wasn't the greatest cup tie, wasn't the greatest story. I don't know quite what I was put there. That's not why. what I think of the <laughs> FA Cup, so I'll be having a word. But um, but um, but um, you know, I, I I do you know it's incredible how Leeds. It's fifty years since Leeds won the cup, but I do like the way that David Moyes went about it. Of all these games, he's got games coming out of his ears, and basically still went for it. 
and you know with senior players but if he'd had a young player that was coming through then you can bet your bottom dollar that he'd have put him in and I like that the FA Cup for that opportunity to do so and the sensible managers get it right when they put their their you know their youngsters in and they can thrive just actually, sort of, some occurred to me there as you said that, Crossy. When was the last time Leeds actually had any sort of cup run? Because even even before they won it under Revy, wasn't it? Wasn't, wasn't there some mad stat that they they hadn't won a third round tie in years or something like that? He's bonkers, they're, they're quite, absolutely yeah. bonkers. Listen, I'm quietly, you know, I'm a, I, I, I've got a soft spot for Leeds. And listen, there's not many not many non-Leeds <laughs> fans that can say that in the country, is there? Blimey, everyone hates Leeds. But I do, you know, I, I don't know. I just is that it's... soft spot quit, Sam, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's... I, I don't know, there's something that sort of always fascinates me about Leeds because it's just such a big club. And you go there. You know, I went for the game earlier in the season and the atmosphere at Ellen Road is amazing. It wheels you in and it's brilliant. And I love the way that they sing that song, you know. You've never heard you know heard it in person. It's amazing the sort of the chorus and it grips you and it's a proper connection with the. That's why I like it. It's a proper connection with the fans really, and they're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I get that. And the basically the, the the you know the sort of the um, the intensity of it. And Bielsa fascinates me. I just think it's brilliant Bielsa because he's just brought something to different to the Premier League, and I love watching his. His style of football and di- it's different and it's fascinating. Where would we be if everyone played the same formation, the same system? It would just be boring. Um, but I do think that there's one thing about Bielsa that really does, you know, great. In that uh, yesterday, in fairness, because of all the injuries, he did go as strong as possible. But that's not saying much, basically, because he didn't have. But yeah makes it unbelievable that he's never won a third round tie in, in you know this is fourth season and then basically the last time that the Leeds did was in 2017 when they, they then they lost in the fourth round to Sutton but they you know it's just it's it is bonkers how bad Leeds have been in recent times in the FA Cup you know they haven't had great times lately but I do remember one win wasn't it at Old Trafford yeah and 2010, it's, you know, right, yeah. but it's but generally, it's been an absolute, you know, graveyard for them. Yeah, I, but I suppose the the great thing about the weekend was that it, the, there were reminders around about why we fell in love with the game in the first place. You know, as we go back to, to Cambridge winning at, at Newcastle, which was just a lovely story, irrespective of everything else that's going around there. Um, don't really want to bring it down, but I just want to end, if I could, um, on on the broader issue of the pressure on the modern player. Um, Migs, what's the moral of the story of Davy Proper? You know, here's a player, international, Dutch international, quitting at 30 because he's basically fallen out of love with the game. Yeah, I, I suppose maybe it's... and uh, There is potential in this, the current especially with so much debate going on about, you know, biennial World Cups and all the rest of it, where it... And I actually... I got one of those emails the other day one of those kind of usually aggravating PR emails where someone's done this kind of some sort of superficial research that, you know, and, and trying to publish something. But one of them was about how much sports stars earn per minute. Uh, and, and it's true, obviously, so much were from American sports. And that is, it's not because they're, they're now paid better than footballers. It's because, obviously, their calendars are so much less congested. And that's what maybe what a kind of a lot of them, the modern 
fixture list has become, which feeds into what the industry has become, where it's just a conveyor belt. And he, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is actually what what Proper's main issue was, but, but certainly, I mean, a lot, a lot of modern players must just feel like it's just game to game to game to game. And of course, yes, they're mo- the, there's, there's a strand of them paid very, very handsomely for this. But, I mean, your, your pay is separate to how you psychologically ra- react to any given situation. And uh, for some, it, 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 it must just become quite, potentially kind of an, 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 an emotionless treadmill in that regard. Uh, and it, it does feel, feel like we are, I mean, tw- 2021 could have pushed in that direction for all sorts of reasons. And of course, we've got, we did, there's the ongoing discussion about changes to the calendar after 2024. But it does, it does feel as if we are coming to a potential, uh, a, a key moment as regards what the football calendar has to actually look like and what it means for the players, especially as the issue of player welfare comes up so much. With that connected to the product we watch on the pitch, um, yeah, and it, it feels like some sort of flashpoint is coming because there's a lot of competing forces and tension that are kind of combining right now. The, the other thing that really struck me, you know, about David Proper's statement was he did, you know, it, it was very clear that part of his angst was, was, was lockdown, wasn't it? And basically playing football through that. And now listen, I'm not saying that footballs are, are, are martyrs or anything like that. Blimey, you know, people in the you know the NHS front line have it far, far worse. But honestly, I do think at times, you know, how much fun is it, you know, being a footballer normally in normal times? And how much fun is it now? It's just such a slog and it all goes into that. And, you know, what you were saying, Migs, about this sort of kind of, you know, going game to game. We just, you know, at the moment it's like test, yeah. test, football, test. And it's like daily and it's grind and it's it's not a lot of fun there, it feels like. And it feels like, I don't know, some of those players must think it's probably the same for all of us, isn't it? Is it you know, are we enjoying life to the full at the moment? No. Mm. No, we're not. You know, everything's on hold a bit, really. And it's like, you know, we sort of have dues cancelled you know can't go out and it's it's you know it's the price you pay and it's but we're not we're not actually seeing people as as it stands and when's the way out you know when are we going to see any proper light of the tunnel and it just feels as if like oh blimey you know i I was so surprised over you know before christmas Mm -hmm. that basically football hasn't been locked down for example you know, it really was. I mean, it makes no sense, you know, in in a way. You, you know, it's like every, the government's got, almost using football as, as a bit of a guinea pig to say, oh, what are we going to do with herd immunity? And basically, go on then, you know, let you, police yourselves. And a lot of fans haven't been turning up. I mean, look at the, you know, I, I've sort of quoted it a few times, fascinated by attendances, obsessed by them. But it's like, you know, uh, Tottenham had sort of 45,000 at the Liverpool game. It was 25% down. For Palace on Boxing Day, they had 40,000. You know, that's, you know, 66%. It's a third down. I mean, it's just... And they're basically saying, well, that's one of the reasons why we're not looking football down, because basically people are policing themselves. And I just think, you know, they're almost using football as a bit of a snapshot in community. And at the moment, you know, we've got this thing, you know, how do we get away out of the pandemic? Well, I just think they're looking at herd immunity and they're almost using football, I think, as a, a, bit, a bit of an experiment and saying, well, get on with it. Because you can't tell me that 
that basically thousands and thousands of people haven't rocked up to football over the last three weeks when it's been rampant and and got COVID. Well, how does that make any sense? You know, it makes no sense at all. And it's just, it means that, you know, we're probably not enjoying it to the full and other players. It's just, I think it's a whole new aspect that basically has probably, you know, could easily impact on a, a player's enjoyment stroke mental health. I really do. It's not, it's not, it's not what it should be. I, I suppose it is. It's a, it's adaptation to the current circumstances as best we can. We are the kind of tied to the evolution of how, how, um, uh, how damaging or otherwise Omicron is. Well, the, the one side of that I was thinking actually, at various points, especially in December, just as you, you were talking there, it struck me. Uh, at various points, say in the particularly in December, there was talk about players having to go into bubbles to keep the show on the road, and that that, that would almost be the bigger issue for me. I think in that for for all, for all their paid again, there must have been players kind of thinking, you know, is this what I say? They did have to go to bubbles. Is this what I what I signed up for to actually give up that much of my actual everyday life to keep it? And and that is the point where you kind of get to not quite performing seals, but essentially them having to give up their their social interactions to keep this big show on on, on the road. Now again, yes, it's um, it's it's compensated by a Premier League level huge money, but there is there is still a discussion for people to have there. Well, I suppose it's a fair guess that, that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably at one stage or another had the dream of making it as a professional footballer. Um, despite the huge financial rewards, as, as Mig referred to there, you know they're available to the very best, but it's still a hard, unrelenting business. It requires physical durability and mental toughness. Um, players, well, they're central to a business it's a people business but it also tends to treat people pretty badly i found it sad but understandable that someone like proper chose to walk away without a backward glance i suspect he won't be the last in the meantime thanks to john and miguel for their insight and thank you for listening to the football writers podcast <laughs>